0: Thank you for joining us as we continue a series called, does anyone remember what it's called? In Jesus' name, amen. All right? We've been going through John since February of 2018, and we've made it to eight. (laughs) Woo-woo! We've been crawling through the book of John, and today we're going to do a little bit of a field trip as we continue chronologically through the book that is penned by the disciple whom Jesus loves. Today, we're tackling something that is a bit unusual. There's this passage in John that has a bit of an asterisk next to it. In most of your Bibles, you'll see a footnote next to this passage and it reads something like this, and so I'm going to read it to you. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21:38, or Luke 24:53. And I already know some of us are confused and I get it. And to be totally honest, I wrote two sermons for this Sunday, and that's not why we're going through 55 verses. We're doing the second sermon today. But the first sermon was going to tackle all the understanding of how Scripture was put together and all of that, and that will be great for some COV after party. But today we're going to exalt Jesus Christ. Amen? And we look at this passage, and I've, I've looked at my co-laborers, and I've looked at other pastors that have taught this specific text before, and they, the conservative pastors often will do this. They'll ignore it completely. And then we have other people that will look at this passage, and they'll teach it as authoritative like the rest of Scripture, and we're not going to do either of those things. All right? Today, what we're going to do is we're going to tackle it, and we're going to allow, and you're going to hear this multiple times, we're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's what we're doing today, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited about getting to spend time in this and wrestle with this and come to the understanding that even though this story in John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is really good, I mean, it's a great illustration similar to the Steph Curry illustration I used, but it's not authoritative like the Great Commission. A couple of reasons for this and why I believe that is John probably did not write this story it includes 13 words in these uh, 12 verses or so that John doesn't use anywhere else in any part of his gospel, including the word scribe, which is a pretty telltale sign. It does nothing for the narrative of where Jesus was in John 7, verse 52, and where he's at in John 8:12. In fact, those two actually go seamlessly together, but this creates an interruption. It was not included specifically in the early manuscripts that we possess that were tediously copied by scribes. So the, the closest to the original we have do not include the story. None of them do. So since it was not included, there are hypotheses that it was added to Scripture a few hundred years later. And what happened probably did happen, but it probably it was not, I doubt it was written by John the Apostle. It doesn't take anything away from the deity of Christ, but it also doesn't add anything to it either, and, it isn't, and that already isn't included in Scripture somewhere else regarding God's character and the authority of God through His Word. And the last reason, that one I just mentioned, is actually why I would like to admit that many scholars, I agree with them in the sense that the story probably happened, Or some type of story that was similar to it, which, unlike the rest of Scripture, has been meticulously maintained by scribes, oral traditions, and manuscripts that have been labored over for centuries. So even though the story probably took place, we will not be teaching it like the authoritative way we tend to teach and read the rest of Scripture. If you notice, we didn't ask everyone to stand as we read it. Or teach it verse by verse like we tend to do as we've been going through the book of John. So at the end of John, God, God speaks through, John, and uses this disclaimer: John 21:25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So could this story have happened? Absolutely. And there are many things Jesus did that did not end up in Scripture because God decided that we did not need those specific stories, so we believe in the completed, canonized group of letters that we have today as our Bible, but we believe in Scripture as it was originally written. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Okay, if you don't, um, you're going to have to look it up or talk to me later. All Scripture, these 66 letters found in the Bible, we believe, have been spoken out by God through His servants by the work of the Spirit of God. We believe all Scripture is perfect in its writing, complete in its entirety, and from God as it was originally written, which may be something that many of us haven't thought about. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, Paul writes to a guy with a great name. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have different translations from different languages that have, over thousands of years, been documented so that we could know God. And like many of you, I want to get it right. But most importantly, I want to exalt Jesus, the biblical Jesus. Not one I've created in my own image, but the one who created me in His image. So we're going to acknowledge that this passage isn't one that is easy to understand, and it's not written the same way the rest of the New Testament is written, but that doesn't mean it's not useful. I would just encourage you to see it as a story that probably happened rather than build your entire theology around this one story, because people that do that start cults. In fact, Scripture interprets Scripture. So, to point to the story is the only place where you're trying to make a, a point is known as proof texting, and it's how cults start. And people who want scriptures to justify their lifestyles and beliefs use scripture to lead people astray from a holistic God who is confirmed by the Holy Spirit, who, Holy Spirit, authored and led... The people to write what they wrote for God to reveal himself to his creation through the 66 books of the Bible written over 1,500 years on three different continents with three different languages included by about 40 different human authors. But today, we're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. In fact, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, praise God for that, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's spend some time talking about the story that found itself placed in the middle of Jesus, spending time on the last day of the festival of tabernacles. Many of you know this story. Many of you have been taught this story either in a sermon, you've read it before, or maybe it was in children's ministry with a felt board, anyone remember, where you have maybe been told from this story that the point is to not judge people. This story is a great one. I don't really struggle with if it happened at all. I believe it did, but the way Scripture is put together, it's a story that doesn't really have a place to be included. That's why it's been put in a bunch of different places within the Gospels. But here's the story. Jesus appears again in the temple courts. Pharisees and scribes bring a woman before the temple with the intent to stone her because of being caught in the act of adultery. Then they attempt to trap Jesus by asking him questions of the law. I always think that's funny that they're going to use the law that's about him against him. And they ask him these questions. So what does Jesus do? You know, and remember, he starts to write in the sand, right? And everyone's like, what was he writing? It doesn't matter but he was writing in the sand. And so they continue, they're, they're kind of pushing on him. They try to attempt to trap him. And then Jesus straightens up and says, after being questioned, he who is without sin cast the first stone. We know this story. We've heard this story. He then ba- bends back down and continues writing his paragraph into the sand. Then each man who had contemplated Jesus's words dropped their rock on the ground, and awkwardly walked away, starting with the oldest down to the youngest, until all were gone. When Jesus looks at the woman and says, woman, where have you gone? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, sir, or in some translations, no, Lord. Neither do I, Jesus says, and go and sin no more. The story is great. And again, I don't have a problem believing it happened, but to treat this with the same authority to treat Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, with Nicodemus in John 3, or even Paul's words to Timothy or Titus, is a misunderstanding of the power and the authority of what actual God-breathed Scripture is. Now, does this contradict the rest of Scripture? No, not at all. In fact, what we see today is that even though it doesn't have the same pedigree or power of Scripture, it is in line with God, His character, and His revealing of Himself. Most importantly, I want to let you know how important it is to me that we as a community worship the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth are not in conflict or contrast with one another, but they are in cooperation with who God is and what he does. A year ago, we were in John 4, and in it, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, a woman who is known as promiscuous. Rihanna has a really good definition for that. And Jesus speaks with her at the well, which is just not something that a Jewish man would do in this time period. It was culturally taboo. But here goes Jesus doing things the opposite of those who attempted to justify themselves through their religion. Those are legalists. So John 4, verse 23 said this, as Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks." God in spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. But worshiping in spirit and truth is not something that comes naturally. Now, just for some of you, when I say worshiping in the spirit, that doesn't mean you're on top of the pew shaking your hands, all right? That's not what that means. It might mean that in the quietness of your heart, you are engaging in devotion with God. This has nothing to do with how you outwardly express it, but why you're expressing it in the first place. But worshiping in spirit and truth is, again, not something that comes naturally. In fact, it is something that comes supernaturally. As the spirit of God reveals, illuminates, and reminds us of what his word says. Juan Sanchez, a pastor in Houston, not that other pastor in Houston, but this pastor in Houston, writes in a blog via the Gospel Coalition a wonderful definition that I want us to see and hear. That was a dig on Joel Osteen in case anyone was wondering what I was doing. I have no problem. Come at me, bro. But Dr. Juan Sanchez in this blog says it this way, true worship engages both mind and heart. True worship requires that we engage God with our minds as we study his work and seek to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. At the same time, don't stop there, it requires that we engage God with our hearts as the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives overflows and causes us to praise God in complete delight. I love that word. This means that our worship will be passionate and Spirit-filled, Spirit-dominated, because it is based on the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. As we worship, we ought not, or we ought, not that we all do this, but we ought to delight in the Lord, church. There should be a desire, not a feeling of obligation to worship God, but a want, a need, a completeness in doing so. To worship a God who isn't rooted in the truth that the Holy Spirit spoke about Himself is mysticism. But to worship the God who has revealed Himself, nothing is, and wait for it, this word's going to be difficult for some of us, nothing is more euphoric than worshiping the true God in spirit and in truth. But for a lot of us, we worship out of duty, <laughs> duty, that was for Stephanie, rather than out of Love. We worship out of duty, rather out of love for this deity who is the God who has called us to himself. So today we'll see the themes of the story, known as the woman caught in adultery through the word of God, interpreting the word of God, which we believe to be breathed out by God and written down by servants under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So 15 minutes in, that was my opening. You guys ready? Here we go. I'm going to actually give you an outline. I never write outlines. I wrote an outline for this one because there's 55 verses. Here we go. There are three things I want you to see from the story that is consistent with God's word apart from the story. Here we go. First, Jesus challenges the law keepers who find their righteousness in themselves. That's what he challenges. He challenges the law keepers who find their righteousness in themselves. Second, Jesus reestablishes righteousness, right standing before God, on the foundation of grace, Hallelujah. And last, Jesus calls individuals who are His to a higher standard that is impossible without Him. See what He did there? That's pretty good. So let's start with Jesus challenges the law keepers who find their righteousness in themselves. So we're going to spend some time in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we see Jesus having a few different interactions lined up as Jesus talks with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. First, Jesus teaches a parable that challenges the fact that the Pharisees thought that they deserved eternal life. That's cute. Because of what they did, because of their religious activity. And this is known as the the parable of the wedding banquet. And I'm not going to teach that one, but this is the context in which it starts. So we're going to jump in verse 15. After hearing that parable where Jesus essentially said, you can't earn it, he says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Legalists always want to trap. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teachers, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. This is like an encouragement rebuke sandwich. We know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God. (laughs) He's the way in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. (laughs) I love Jesus. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? I love this. It says, Matthew records, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, you persons with masks on your face, you actors, why are you trying to trap me? Show me, I don't know if you went, you know, but show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is on this? Whose inscription on this coin? They replied, Caesar. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. (laughs) Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees who were attempting to trap him. This term trap actually means to be used by the devil, is what it alludes to. So they ask him if he were right, if they were right to pay imperial taxes, because the Pharisees didn't believe that it was right to pay taxes to Caesar. So what does Jesus do? He asks for a coin, and he, and he replies, who's on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. See, Caesar's image was stamped on the coin, but God's image is stamped upon every human being. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, going way back. Then God said, let us make mankind in our, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Then some Sadducees, another religious group of people who had some deeper misunderstandings of Scripture, attempted to ridicule Jesus by asking him a ridiculous question that was actually more of a riddle than a possibility. The question was about marriage at the resurrection, which the Sadducees did not believe in anyway. So they questioned Jesus about Moses' words. So let's hear it. It's so good. That same day, the Sadducees, verse 23... Who say there is no resurrection, oh, that's cute, came to him with question. Teacher, they said. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. Since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Weird. The same thing happened to the second and third, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? (laughs) Jesus, not being fazed by this at all, because he knows the hearts of men, mind you, says, you are in error, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Think of how offensive that is to a Sadducee who thinks they know the Scriptures, it's the thing they identify themselves by, by keeping the law. And he goes, you don't understand it. Wow. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people neither marry nor be given in marriage. Single people, you're practicing heaven. Just putting that out there. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So now we have we see Jesus challenge the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've been have mics essentially dropped on them, and he says, You do not know the scriptures. You do not know the power of God. The scriptures which they prided themselves on and justified themselves by, they do not know the power of God, because if they did, they would know he is the only one powerful enough to justify anyone. Those who interpret the Scriptures correctly know that only Jesus can justify anyone. In fact, Paul affirms this in Romans 4. He's talking about Abraham, Father Abraham, if you've ever sang the song in children's church. Against all hope, Abraham, Romans 4, verse 18, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be without weakening in his faith? He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. She was 95. Yet he did not waver through the unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened. Do you see that? In his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was accredited to him as righteousness, right standing. The words it was accredited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, hallelujah, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Abraham, the father of many nations, was too old to have children. He and his wife Sarah, too old to have children. Yet God had promised them that they would have more descendants than there were stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. And they believed God. They didn't just believe he existed. Demons know he exists. But he believed him. He Believed everything that he had said. He believed that he would, everything that he had said about himself that had been revealed to that point. Progressive revelation is what this is known as. You and I, we don't have to believe in the Old Testament, Old Covenant promises alone anymore. We don't have to because they have been fulfilled by the work, person, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's where we put our faith. We trust in him. That is what we believe in. That is what is accredited to us as righteousness, not because of what we've done, but because of what's been done for us. Continuing in Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, like a council meeting. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Here comes the Pharisees again and they're like, well, you're a lawyer. You go talk to him. And once again, they try to challenge him with the very scriptures that talk about him. The lawyer is wanting Jesus to say that his teaching is more important than Moses. They're waiting to hear from him an exaltation of himself over the teachings of Moses, over the person of Moses who directly spoke with God. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Moses. And he points out their misunderstanding of the commandments. Here's what he says Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Like it. Not second important. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word of God's a lot deeper than I think we give it credit. Jesus was speaking of the Old Testament, which some of us treat as the the dusty former part of the Bible that doesn't matter because I understand Jesus, but every page of the Bible talks about Jesus, church. And to know and love him is to read it all, to look at the fact that there were things in the Old Testament that foreshadowed and pointed to the perfect sacrifice who would be sacrificed for you and I. I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel, and guess what? We're going to teach all of the scriptures. Because the gospel's in all of it. So what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What does he add? Your mind. Interesting. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, is what Leviticus 19.18 says. So he quotes Moses as God spoke through him. And the most important thing is that we know that we can love God with all of who we are. And how does that take place? How is that manifested? How do we know if we're loving God with all that we are? He says the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, okay. What if my neighbor parks in front of my house? It drives me nuts. Is my neighbor here? No, he's not here. Good. He's not the one who does it. How do we love the Lord God with all our soul, strength, mind, with all of us? The second commandment is like it. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Let me put it this way. Uh, Did you know, you guys can talk back to me, did you guys know that God loves your neighbors? Okay, you guys knew that. Praise God, and you're here. Okay. Well, guess what? He wants to love your neighbors using you. He wants to love your neighbors using you as the conduit of that love. Yeah, but they kept me up last night. Okay. Well, they, blah, blah, blah. Excuse, 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 don't be a legalist. God says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But see, here's where we get it twisted. You don't love people, and because you love people, you can claim you love God. All right? That's not what this is talking about, but your faith exercise because you love God is to love people. Don't miss that. You don't love people, and because of that, you can claim you love God. You love God, and because of that, the overflow of the grace you've been given is to love your neighbors. See, too much justification of our love for God is how nice we are to people, If we love God, we will love others. If we love others without God, it tends to have a selfish motive attached to it. Even if we don't see it, it's there. So let's get back to the story of the woman caught in adultery. We see men bringing her before Jesus, saying she is caught in adultery, and essentially testing Jesus. Well, he doesn't challenge their sin in the fact that the Levitical law stated that if this were true, they should bring both the man and the woman before them. See, Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Ooh. And what is generally taken from the story is that Jesus showed grace to a woman who, according to the law, had broken it. Well, that's all of us, guys. And that is consistent with the grace of God. That is consistent with the woman at the well. That is consistent with the parable of the prodigal son. The thief on the cross all have this specific theme, not that there isn't consequences for their sins, but that salvation is offered to the least of these. The struggle that this story sometimes creates is that it becomes an excuse for people to sidestep or wink at their sin because they think only a sinless person should judge me. He will. And he won't judge you based on how good or bad you are. He'll judge you based on whose you are. Don't miss that. It's not about how good or bad you are, it's how, it's whose you are. And if we're honest, a lot of us take for granted the grace that was offered to us in Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes through receiving grace, not keeping the law. And every legalist in this room's just tightened up a little bit. Righteousness comes through receiving grace, not keeping the law. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? I really wish I knew tone. What do you think about the Messiah? Like Jerry Seinfeld. Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son. No one can say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Oh, don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. (laughs) Jesus is coming. Don't ask him a question. He'll show us what's up. See, Jesus goes on the offense. He asks a question that he knew the teachers of the law could not answer. Why? Because he knew the hearts of men because their legalistic view kept them from understanding the bigger picture, See, the Messiah came from the lineage of David, not his son. David's son was Solomon. Solomon, not so good. And if David says in Psalm 110, verse 1, that that the Lord said to my Lord, who, according to these people, is bigger than David? Not his son. David was the most prominent figure in Israel. But who is above him? Well, they believed Yahweh, God the Father. What they didn't understand was also God the Son. David was speaking about Jesus. And as Jesus asked this question, these Pharisees were unwilling to answer or respond because they were afraid of what they might have to admit. So Jesus stumps the teachers of the law, go Jesus, with a question they could not answer, which caused them to stop trying. We see the same in the story with the woman caught in adultery. He then calls out a precedence that only he could accomplish. Listen, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And Jesus establishes righteousness, not based on what you do, but on the foundation of grace. In, in the, para, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular sermon ever preached, it says, Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, "'Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't you hate when you read Scripture and you're like, I'm not better than them? Or Jesus says, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're like, but my 401k is doing all right. I own a house in Santa Clara. Yeah, you're rich, bro, gal. You you just are. But what he's not talking about is the fact that any of this stuff can be done based on someone else's work, but on his work through them. He did not come to abolish, to do away with, or remove. He came to fulfill because we could not on our own. And then he says in verse 19, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Practices and teaches. Okay? Like, I'm a hypocrite. I gotta be honest about that, but that shouldn't surprise any of you but I am trying by the power of the Spirit of God in me to obey more and more each day. And so it's not about perfection, it's about pursuit. So Jesus calls out the religious of the day. See, they could tell others about the law, they could regurgitate the things they read, but they couldn't practice or obey it out of love because they were too busy attempting to self-justify. They missed the justifier. Uh... Regurgitation of the Bible doesn't equal or manifest spiritual maturity. Obedience out of love does. There's a difference. See, Satan can quote the Bible all day and he's better at it than you and me. So, what's he say at the end? Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees were the most law abiding citizens anywhere because they could not see grace. Legalistic people attempt to earn what was freely given. Let me say that again. Legalistic people attempt to earn what was freely given. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So Jesus couldn't have meant that you had to be righteous on your own like these Pharisees, but that you must be indwelled by the Holy Spirit who leads you to repentance and grace-driven effort rather than begrudging submission out of duty. The end of the story of the woman caught in adultery, has Jesus say, go and sin no more. This is impossible. Can we all admit that? Like, it is impossible not to sin. It is impossible to put Christ at the center of everything I'm doing because I am selfish. And yet, what does he say? Go and sin no more. Yet Jesus doesn't call us to things that we can do on our own, but he calls us to things that depend upon him. I like the sermon. When the Holy Spirit resides in us, because we have received Jesus Christ, we have believed in him, we have entrusted ourselves to him. You want to know what believe means? It means to entrust to. The Spirit of God then gives us the ability to lead us and to love others through us. Jesus calls individuals who are his to a standard that is impossible without him. So, Paul speaks to the greatest commandment as the fulfillment of the law, Though, that those who are redeemed by Jesus, we get to participate in this. Here's what he says in Romans. Yay, Romans, chapter 13. Let no debt, verse 8, remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and whatever whatever other command there may be are summed up with this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If what you just heard me say was, this is how I can earn, earn salvation, by loving my neighbor, you've missed everything else I've said. Because Jesus fulfills the law. And when he does, he sends his spirit, when we receive Christ as king, to reside in us and then we have the opportunity to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, we've been talking about John, we've seen Matthew affirm this, we've seen Paul affirm this. John affirms this in another place in his epistles, the letters, First John. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Let that sink in for a second. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Oh, how I've heard people use that verse in a totally wrong context. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Hallelujah, amen, John. And so, why do you love others? Because Christ first loved you. Why do you care for the least of these because you are the least of these and Christ first loved you. You want to know if you have a relationship with God? You want to know how you show off the fact that you have a relationship with God? It's not by your church attendance. It's not by how much you give. It's not by how high you raise your hands when we sing. It's not by how many verses you can regurgitate or how many church fathers you can pronounce their names correctly. You want to know how? John says it in John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's why the church is so important, because it is an opportunity to grow spiritually as we love one another. It's an opportunity for us to get to know someone who doesn't look just like us, wasn't born in the same generation as us, maybe drives a different car than we drive, maybe cares that the warriors are playing or doesn't care that the warriors are playing tonight. It's a place for people to come together and make much of Jesus as we love one another, and by that people will know that you're Christ's disciples. Oh, if we would think biblically. If we think about what God said and how we can obey it out of love, uh, again, I confess often, there's so much I don't know, guys. Can I just put that out there? Like if you're like, oh, Tim's the expert. I'm not the expert of anything other than sinning. Really good at that. Just putting that out there. And there's so much I don't understand, but I want to grow deeper and deeper in my relationship and my devotion and my obedience to the Lord God Almighty because he first loved me. What's important in all of this? It's that you and I, we keep pursuing, that God keeps growing us, and that obedience abounds not out of duty, but out of worship. Obedience isn't natural. We're all idolaters. Did you know that? We all either make a good thing, a God thing, and make it our idol, or we all kind of act like we're God in our own minds. We all think we're the center of the universe. We all think we're Truman in the Truman Show. Anyone? And yet, God is the center of the universe. And he sends his son to redeem us and his spirit to restore us back to right relationship with him. And you know what our supernatural response gets to be? To love others as God has loved us. J.D. Greer is a pastor on the other side of the country. And in a book I've been reading because Lifeway's going out of business and their books are super cheap. Just leave right after this and go pick up books. They're only open for two more weeks. He says this in a book called The Gospel. Shocking that I'm reading this. The gospel produces not just obedience, but a new kind of obedience. An obedience that is powered by desire. An obedience that is both pleasing to God and delightful to you. That's what it means to understand that the gospel has saved you from your sin. And because of that, now as I obey, it's not difficult, it's not worrisome, it's not troublesome, it's delightful. Loving others is not easy. And to really put others' needs before our own does not come naturally. But God did not create the heavens and the earth, make a man and woman in his own image, give a law, take on flesh, live a perfect life amongst his creation, die a sinner's death, rise from the dead, gift us his word and his spirit so we would live a self-absorbed life that makes our self-interest and our self-preservation of utmost importance. We don't need the spirit of God for that. The third person of the triune God, we do not need for that. We can do that on our own. But to love others, to love people, to love our neighbor as ourself, that requires God's intervention. That isn't something we do in our own strength. It is something that God does through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. You might say what some of the people in the text say, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, he's the Good Samaritan, by the way. Just spoiler alert. That's how you should read that. But What's crazy for me is a lot of us want to make excuses to why that person or that person doesn't count, okay? I don't know everything, but what I do know is that when I obey, for the right reasons, I tend to grow. And so if you're not really sure, well, this person really uh, off-puts me, he made this comment somewhere, or this person parked in front of my house, or this person likes the Yankees. I mean, I'm still still in remission of... Anyway... Whatever the excuse you have to not love someone, maybe that's the specific person you need to go love. Sorry, that wasn't in my notes. So here's my question. Does the Spirit of God lead you? Does the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does he lead you? Because he leads and we follow if we delight in the Lord if we delight in who he is.